uh, I, I just, we've been in a series on praise. I know you have no clue what's going to happen, but I needed someone that could handle the gusto of the moment. Grab his guitar for him, Jordan, or Corey. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Um, so I, I just want to, <laughs> this is one of those moments where the Holy Spirit's hit me and I need to do something. And I'm not, we honor you, we love you, but that's not what I'm doing. You're chewing on a guitar pick. That's weird. Um, uh, but but I, I just, I just, I, I, I've given up on looking uh, cool. Like, I buy my pants at Costco now, so I don't care anymore. Um, <laughs> that's how you know you've leveled up to a new spot. But um, re, I, I just want to, I, I we're going to go to the 145th Psalm. So if you have your Bible, Open up to the 145th Psalm. I'm going to teach you a third Hebrew word for praise. There's actually four. We skipped one. The one we skipped is zamar. It means to worship and praise God skillfully with stringed instruments. So for those of you that are like, I don't like instruments in worship, well, the Bible disagrees with you, and heaven's going to not be fun for you because uh, there's lots of skillfully stringed instruments in heaven and percussion uh, that I can give you biblical arguments for being there. Nonetheless, we're not going to teach on that. I want to teach you about the Hebrew word for praise called Saba. The reason we're doing this is when you read your Bible in most of your translations, it just says praise. But praise could mean one of four things in Hebrew. It could mean yadal, which means to lift your hands in thanksgiving to God. Uh, it, it can mean halel, which means to boast and glorify God. It can mean zamar, which means to play skillful music to God. Or it could mean saba, which is the word I'm going to tell you about in just a minute, so I'm not going to spoil it. But I, I want you to do some assessment for a minute. Uh, it is my ambition as your pastor that you would live a life that is desperate for Jesus. Uh, what I mean is year over year, month over month, it is my intent through preaching and teaching and my own living to live life in such a way that looks a little bit more ridiculous for Jesus this week than it did last week, i.e. why I've brought Rio on stage. He still doesn't know why he's here. <clears throat> So there, there's some interesting things in the Bible that deal with your relationship with Christ. Like if the census were to go out to the majority of your homes and you were to fill it out, you likely would check the box Christian, right? For the majority of us. Some of us were not there, maybe we're not sure, we were there. But for many of us, the, that I'm a Christian doesn't define the current state of the relationship. And for a lot of us, I think it's probably a good idea to have a state of the address when it comes to your own relationship and posture towards God, which likely is revealed in praise, but uh, it, it, it's telltale on a lot of us. So in the scripture, Peter was constantly walking with Jesus until Jesus gets arrested. And then we read that Peter began to, this represents Jesus because he's what I'm about to do to him in a second. <clears throat> um, we, we read that Peter began to follow Jesus at a distance. And for some of you, uh, you no longer linger near Christ, you just follow Christ at a distance. Meaning, uh, you're 
relationship with God is predominantly defined by a programmed weekly gathering. And outside of that programmed weekly gathering and the prayers that are prayed within it, you don't pray unless you get in traffic, need a miracle, or a parking spot at Target during the holiday season. And that's about the summation of the relationship. It's, it's not that you aren't Christian because your Christian faith is on Christ who grabbed you, not on you keeping up a persona. You, you're not going to lose your salvation because you make mistakes or you wonder. The prodigal son goes prodigal, but his last name still is what? Son. And for some of you, you're following Jesus at a distance. And we can see it in the way that you live your life and in the worry that's riddling your mind. And I know that for some of us, anxiety is a, uh, we have chemical imbalances and challenges that come with that. And I am all for therapists and I'm all for medication and all those kinds of things. But some of our worry deals with the fact that we are following Jesus at a distance. Therefore, we don't trust in his lordship over the details that are going on within our life. Is that you today? Are you a distant follower of Jesus? You've become a third cousin when you were meant to say, at his table like you are his close relative brothers and sisters and siblings not distant cousins from texas that we see once or twice a year now there's another group of you that are walking close by jesus you're just kind of hanging out and it's fun jesus is a friend of mine i have a friend in jesus and this is kind of where we're at you know like he's my homeboy we have a t-shirt we wear a wrist bracelet it's cool, we, we love Jesus, we're relatively engaged in it, but there are times where the crisis of life or the needs of life eclipse our trust in the God that's beside us being our all-sufficient Savior in our time of need. And so it's, it's not bad to be here, it's just sort of casual. It's, just, it's, it's, it, it's, it's not desperate. And at the end of the day, my ambition is not that you would just walk with Jesus, but that you would cling to Jesus, that you would be desperate for for Jesus. What am I getting at? Rio, brace yourself. I'm coming. Here we go. This, this is why we chose Rio. Now, some of you, I'm going to stay here. Thank you. Some, some, some of you are like, this looks ridiculous. This, this seems a little over the top. I don't care. The more I read the Bible, the more I learn is to be it is abs- is that it is absolutely ridiculous for you to have a God with such great power and for you to sit like you could walk beside him and be okay. I'd rather be here than walking beside Jesus. This is desperate, right? Like this is what I mean. This is what I'm after. So you're like, well this ain't my church. Good. There's plenty of churches that are that are fine with just a casual walk. There's some churches where, I mean, like, they're good with you just being here. I'm not. I want you, not, not like me, I want you to live a life that clings to Jesus. What happens when you get there? Well, the overflow is an uncontained praise, a decompartmentalized Christian faith. I want Jesus to permeate every area of your life, all of your thoughts and all of your speech and all of your actions. That's what we're after. And if we're not, what are we doing? If all I'm going to sit up here and do is give you a few rules that you're not going to keep or bend so that you can manipulate them to deify you and demonize other people around you, like what are we doing if it's not all about him? I want you to become a stage five clinger of Jesus. That, that's the goal that we are after. Y'all give it up for Rio, his back. His... 
I don't know, just, it just hit me, man. I, I, and I was down there, and I was like, I think I need to jump on Rio's back to describe this. And then I was like, but you're going to look ridiculous. And I was like, but you buy your pants at Sam's. Like, who cares? Like, do you really care about it anymore? I mean, Aber- is Abercrombie and Fitch even around anymore? Like, Aeropostale, did they make it through the pandemic? I don't even know. Like, I wore goggles on my head in high school. It's not like I had far to fall. Anybody, anybody around during the ski goggle era where you just wore ski goggles on your head? Are you going skiing? No, I'm just here. Just hanging out. Some neon pants on. Oh, man. Some jinkos. Someone threw out the word jinkos. Half the room is confused and the other half is having a complete revival. Oh, Lord. All right. I want you to be desperate for Jesus. I believe that a measure of the temperature of your desperation of Christ is seen in praise. Not praise in a room in front of a crowd, but praise that breaks out in spontaneous areas of your life. I believe that every single day is an opportunity to praise God and to worship God or to praise and worship something other than God. My ambition in this series was to give you some of the Hebrew language to give you a better developed language of praise to God. He's worthy of praise in all seasons. You may be going through a difficult moment, but you can still lift your hands, especially whenever you're tempted to keep your hands down in a thanksgiving towards God. That's Yadah. You can give him the great hallel or a hallelujah where you boast in God, especially in the face of powerful and great challenges that you come in contact with in your life. And today I want to talk to you about getting to a point of praising God with Saba, which means from your soul. From your soul. It's the difference in the South between singing and singing. You know what I'm saying? Some of us, we just... We just sung a little song, but for some of us, we sang, like from the very core of who we were, crying out to our God who we need to move on our behalf. So to get this idea introduced, Psalm 145, look at it with me. I'll point out several other things too. Let's read it in its entirety. This is the word of God. I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell his children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Oh, verse 8 should erupt your soul in praise. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. All of your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power. They will tell about your mighty deeds and about the majesty and the glory of your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps his promises. Let me just stop for a minute and remind you that the Lord always keeps his promises. That's why at Christmas time, we go and stand on mountains and tell it. Go tell it on the, over the hills and, why? Because God 
promised that he would send the Messiah, and has he not already sent him? Has he not made a way where there was no way? You see, God keeps his promises. I'm going to lose my place. I'm not supposed to stop preaching when I'm re- stop, stop and preach when I'm reading it. Verse 14, the Lord helps the fallen. That's good news for many of us. And lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He is filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call on him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. He grants the desires of those who fear him. He hears the cries for help and rescues them. The Lord protects all those who love him, but he destroys the wicked. I will praise the Lord. And may everyone on earth bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Can we say thanks be to God this morning for his word? Praise God. Praise God. A couple things I want you to see. The first is a lesson about praise. It comes out of the gate in the first two verses, and it tells us when praise is appropriate and how long praise will last. If you look at verse 1, it says, uh, I will exalt you, O my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. So the first thing you need to know about praise is it is eternal. I spoke on this briefly last week, and I just want to remind you that you and I have been created to worship and praise God, and heaven is a place that is filled with the worship and praise of God in eternity. There are many things that you can give your life to now. I would submit to you there are a few things that have an eternal benefit to them. Praise is something that has an eternal benefit to it. So if you're not good at praise here, you're going to be underdeveloped for what you're going to do there. Now, don't worry, God will catch you up. But my point is, I want you to be a person that is getting ready for a homecoming. And for many of us, we believe the homecoming so far away that we are not ready for our fate to be made sight and for our eyes to lock with our master and king and for the kind of praise that will come out of us. It will not be Baptist. At a minimum, it will be Baptocostal. And my point is... You and I have been created for this kind of praise, and we should get busy praising God in whatever we do on this side of eternity. Praise will be eternal. Number one, verse two tells us how praise should be impacting our life now. What does praise look like now? The second thing I want you to see is he says, I will praise you every day. Every day that ends in Y is a day of praise, according to this psalmist. Just in case some of you haven't thought about that little pun in a while. Maybe you don't think it's punny, but I have dad jokes all days, all, all day. Uh, but my, my point is, every day is an opportunity for you and I to have a life that praises God. This is what we've been after in this series. Now, the text moves forward, though, with some stuff that we've not discussed in the series in verse 3. Praise is eternal. Praise is daily. Verse 3, great is the Lord. And you've been teaching people, or you've probably learned this for a long time now. Uh, Great is a word for God. You pray it in the prayer. God is good. God is, right? And we've, many of us learned that prayer. Some of us have not graduated from praying anything other than that good little scripted prayer. We would hope that someday you would venture to even try and put out your own words from your own soul to a God that is holy and righteous and good that you want to extend. So the statement is uh, that you want to extend thanksgiving to. So the statement is God is great. He's worthy of praise and no one can measure his greatness. So his greatness is immeasurable. He is great in who he is and his greatness is immeasurable. Here's what I'm trying to get across to you. The greatness of God describes the power and the ability of our God. 
And in this text, it's going to speak of God's greatness. And then on the hills of it, it's going to look at the work he's done, which speaks to his goodness. And so what we see throughout the 145th Psalm is a great God who does good work. And that's a good thing, because there are plenty of things that are powerful that don't do good. So there's a lot of things around you in your life that have great power. Yet, with that power, they do not do great good. What we have in the 145th Psalm is a God who is immeasurable in great power and prowess and ability, but is constant in good work. This is why we praise Him. He's great in power in that His words create atmospheres and stratospheres and stars in the sky. In fact, if you flip over a psalm or two, it speaks to how the Lord counts the stars in the sky and calls them by name. He's great and immeasurable in power, but what has he done? He's done with his greatness good, which is what the text is going to jump in and out and around and about. Now, I expected a similar response from this crowd whenever I began to talk about the greatness and goodness of God and how these two parallel each other into our benefit and to bringing out of us a great praise to God because you are just familiar enough with the word great and good and have ascribed it to enough stuff for it to become commonplace and not elicit a great praise out of you. You see, one of the most frequent character statements that we make about God is that he is great. Character, however, is something that is built and proven by actions over history. Some of you are like, I'm a generous person. Well, your character over history backs that statement or denies it. For many of you, you are generous in erratic, sporadic moments. Someone rings a bell and like Pavlov's dog, you throw what's left in your pocket over. That doesn't make you generous. That makes you responsive to a bell. Generosity if you're a person of character of generosity, it's something that is intentional and planned. Isaiah says a generous man devises generous plans, and by his generosity, he will stand. Just want to give you another friendly reminder that none of you are accidentally generous. Generous people budget and make margin within that budget for their neighbor. Make margin within that budget for the future. Make margin within that budget to eliminate debt so that they can become more generous, not more rich in the world's eyes. Are you generous or are you just erratically trying to be something to salve the selfish soul that's focused on your own interests and needs so that you can look the part to a neighbor but not actually experience and live the part as a true believer in light of a generous God who has lavished you generously with his grace so that you in that grace will be generous to your neighbors. See, some of us, we want to be something that we're not. We stay, make platitudes about ourselves. Like, this is who I am. I am, I am a good person. I'm a, I'm a great mother. I'm better than... And, and, and the way that we get to these definitions is not from a reliance on God to give us our identity and our worth and our supply to then become everything that God has called us to be, but it's by comparing ourselves to the most dysfunctional members of our society so that we can then build a character profile that says, I am this because they clearly are not that. Let me be clear. Just because someone isn't as mean as you are does not make you, in character, nice or good. 
It just means you're not as mean as the Grinch. So stop comparing yourself to the Grinch and think I'm Saint Nick when you actually aren't, okay? Your character is revealed in time, over history, in different seasons and circumstances in how you respond. Some of you respond well when everything's going well. But, it's the, but character kicks in when it's going wrong. You see, if you're generous and, you give, and you're a big giver, you give whenever it's going well and whenever it's difficult to give. If you're kind and gracious, you're gracious whenever it's easy to extend grace. But then when you get that group of y'all people, and I'm talking about the y'all people, and you're like, like that, that, that just, they don't deserve the grace of God. I'm praying Old Testament prayers over them. Lord, send a grizzly bear to devour them like you did with Elijah when they called him a bald head. In the name of Jesus. And what's being revealed in there is a lack of character. And, and, and this is my point. God has a constant character. And the, constance, the constancy of his character is that he is great in power and prowess and ability. You see, God is great. However, however, most of you have heard it and most of you are over it. I've heard of his greatness and I've experienced life's challenges. And sometimes God's greatness in the experience of life's most difficult moments make me begin to question the character of that statement. You see, we, we, we know we need a God of great power. We know we need a God of great, of, a God of great ability. However, for many of us, because of various reasons, seasons, and difficulties in our life, we've come to a point of hesitating in the face of an enemy because we've lost sight of the greatness of the God of our victory. And so the psalmist wants you to remember that God is great and his greatness is immeasurable. It's immeasurable. Notice that you need a great God before you need a good God. See, plenty of people want good things for you, but they lack the greatness to give it to you. You see, <laughs> the impact of God's goodness, it comes from the power of God's greatness. Notice the text doesn't say, good is he that is in you, and more good than what stands before you. No, no, it says greater is he that is in you than that which, because let's just be honest, there's some powerful stuff out there that's very difficult to overcome. Addiction is powerful, but here's what's good. God is greater. <laughs> Death is powerful. God is greater. Cancer is powerful. God is greater. <laughs> you see how this works? If he is immeasurable in greatness, you'll come in contact with things that could be little g great in your life that could begin to make you question the power and ability of God or what you're going to do. And, and what the psalmist is laying out for you in verse 3 is that we praise a God who is greater and immeasurable in his greatness than whatever great power stands against you or whatever challenge stands before you. And so because God is great, we know that we can run to him because his power will be sufficient for the need. You need to be reminded of this on a consistent basis. God is great. God is great. But when you become familiar with the word great in its relation to the name of God, 
you begin to mutter things you don't actually believe. Give God lip service about who he really is without any belief that he'll actually be that in your life. And a lot of us sit here right now today saying big words about a God that's supposed to be powerful that we do not believe his power will ever intersect the story or pain or difficulties of our life. I have a friend, his name's Jeremy Kingsley, and he gave up a long time ago, I guess, on looking cool too. And uh, I never will forget, we were in a chapel service at a uh, Christian university, and he was the speaker at that service. And uh, in the middle of it, uh, the worship leader saying, we fall down and we lay our crowns. And everyone's saying it, but no one's falling down. <laughs> so Jeremy, from like a thousand students, runs up in the middle of the worship set. The safety team's like, do we tackle him or is he the speaker? Like, I don't, we don't know. <laughs> and he's, he's like, stop, 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 stop. Did you hear what you just said? That was cool. He, he, he said, did you hear what you just said? You, you said we fall down, and why are you standing in the presence of a holy God that you're saying you're falling down in front of because of his greatness? Why are you standing? You've lost sight of what you're saying. You're not meaning what you say. It's why some of your households are crazy because as parents, you say things you don't actually mean and your kids know it. If you don't stop, you will go to bed. If you don't eat that, you will not get anything else. And they know. <laughs> they know. They know that they can outweigh you. That They know that what you're saying is a suggestion. And... <clears throat> What you really mean is within this next half hour, I will have to endure your wrath, but after 30 minutes, I will get what I want. Your words don't mean what you actually say or think they mean. And for some of us, this is what it comes when it comes to the greatness of God. We say he is great, but we don't actually believe in God's greatness. It's simple lip service. It's simple lip service. For many of us, we have been saying this for so long that its meaning has become meaningless, and it's nothing more than lip service to God. And this is why I'm doing all this work on God is great. Because verse 4 brings us this fourth word for praise. In the NLT, we do not get the word praise in verse 4. Okay? The ESV and the NASV are literal interpretations of the Greek Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay, so what you get in the ESV and the NASV is a Bible that's a little bit more challenging to read, but it's a lot closer to the actual original meaning of the words that were written in the original language. In the NLT, in the NIV, um, the message, stuff like that, what you get are a group of scholars, hundreds of them, in each copy of the Bible that you get, that sit together in a room faithfully debating and working through the original meaning of the word within a cultural context, and then they think about the current cultural context and what word closest relates to that word that would have been spoken in the original cultural context. I'm not telling you to get a new Bible. I'm not telling, that you, telling you that your Bible's bad or something like that. Lots of smarter people than any of us have spent a lot of time working and trying to be faithful to the meaning of the Scriptures. But what we have in the NLT is they try to make it culturally 
uh, understandable to us in our time, but in the, N- but in the uh, ESV, in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, what you get is the word praise in verse 4, and it's where we get the word saba. Now let's look at what it's in relation to, instead of me babbling here about different versions of the Bible and you glazing over in your eyes. Verse 4, it says, let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. Now, in verse 4, in relation to telling the next generation, it says, we will praise you of your, uh, praise your mighty acts, or sp- speak praise to your mighty acts. And that word is Saba. And Saba is meant to evoke the greatest, deepest, most sincere praise that you can, as a human being, possibly give. Deepest, most sincere praise that you can possibly, as a human being, offer to God. It's praise from your soul. And where is it spoken of in the text? In relation to how the next generation experiences your worship. Why? Because they can mimic the disingenuine lifting of hands on a Sunday and then the use of those hands for yourself or an idol throughout the rest of the week. So no matter what you do here, it may be true, but it may be untrue. This may be because you're living a life that desires surrender to God. It may be because you're living a life that wants to express thanksgiving to God. But it may also be just a simple gesture of something that you've learned in a more charismatic leaning church. That you raise your hands knowing that there's actually no surrender and no desire for God's intervention in your life right now. Or expectation that God's going to do anything in your life right now. So it's just simple lip service. Praise. For some of you, you're saying the right stuff. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Right? Our God is able. Our God is capable. How you doing? Better than I should be. Blessed and overwhelmed by the glory of God. No, you're not. You're blessed and overwhelmed by the glory of your mind that's riddled with worry that won't give it to God. So you can give great Hallel boast about God, but in actuality it's not genuine. It's just mere lip service and words that you're throwing out there around it. You see, Saba praise is key when it comes to the next generation because they will worship the way that we worship. And parents, my concern, my drive for you is not what you do within the walls of this church. It's what you do within the walls of your house. It's the praise that you offer or don't offer to God there. It's the priorities you give or the priorities you don't have there. That will speak more than any kids' ministry will ever be able to root a foundational dependency and desperation for Jesus. This is why I'm after you identifying. Are you walking at a distance? Are you walking beside him like he's your friend? If you're a parent, let me tell you where you need to be. Stage five, clinging on the back of Jesus, not letting go. Because raising kids in this generation is a scary and difficult proposition. You've got to be the lead theologian in your house, which means you've got to be a student 
content of the word in your house because you're going to have to teach your kids that the ethic that is biblical is not the ethic that's celebrated in the culture that is around you. So you're going to have to learn how to graciously teach them not to become hard and recluse from the world, but how to be filled with the Holy Spirit and sent into the world with the wisdom of the truth of the light of Christ that illuminates its darkness and begins to allow others to see the hope that can only be found in Christ Jesus. This is the task that you've been called to, and you can't get there just by standing with Jesus as a friend or walking with Jesus at a distance. It takes someone who's dependent upon Jesus so that the next generation can rise up and see that this God is a God that's not for lip service and it's not for outward action that doesn't lead to actual inward transformation, but is a God that is to be worshipped from the very essence of the core of your soul. One generation will tell of your wonders to another. One of my favorite and most difficult character studies on the faults of this comes at the, end of, uh, at the beginning of the book of Joshua and then at the beginning of the book of Judges. Pastor Joe preached about it a while back. Joshua chapter 4, as they're crossing into the promised land that God had promised that they would go into. Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, tells the story. The priests are in the Jordan River. The water has been parted again another time. The people of Israel go into the land that God has promised that they would go into after wandering in the wilderness for 40 plus years because they didn't believe in the greatness of God and his power to overcome great people that were people of power in a valley that God had already said was theirs. So now they're on the precipice. They're standing in the moment where they're actually experiencing the promise of God being fulfilled in their generation. Other generations had hoped that they would see it, but they have not. But now this generation gets to see it. So God commands them, uh, one man from each tribe, to go and get a rock from the middle of the river and to build a monument, a memorial, so when the next generation comes by, they would be reminded of the greatness of God that sustained them in the wilderness in the desert. And they would tell the next generation, let me tell you about how we got here. It was the great God on the other side of that that's given us this land here, that's provided for us in a land where it's a lot easier to cultivate and keep and harvest here, who took care of us over there. That is why you're here where we are. It's why we are what we are. It's why we become what we have become. And so the idea is that they, in remembering, would raise up a generation that would know that God is worthy of their faithfulness and trust and their worship and their saba. Worship from the soul. Judges chapter 2, though, goes on to tell us another story. That after Joshua's generation, who built the monument, died, another generation, one generation removed, rose up, and they knew nothing of the word of God. His wonders, his works, or anything he had done. Was it because they didn't celebrate the feast? The holidays? The ceremonies? Was it because they didn't have a Sabbath where they gathered together in church? Was it because they had stopped singing? No, all these things were still in practice. But what wasn't in practice was an outside of the temple faith. That was authentic and genuine. See, this is my greatest concern. Is that there is an uphill battle we are fighting if your Christianity is compartmentalized and measured in hour blocks weekly. An hour plus on Sunday where you come in and give lip service to God and raise your hands and look the part, but you never from your soul worship, love, walk with, cling to, depend on the goodness and glory of God.
God is great in power, and He does good works. This series has uh, affected my family in some pretty powerful ways. I uh, have been working really hard in the discipline of prayer, personally, uh, spending more and more time before God. In fact, I, I told our elders this in the elder meeting last week, and it's almost, I'm almost ashamed. I, I've been a pastor in ministry in some capacity uh, now for 19 years. I got my first job, wise or unwise, at 19 years of age. And uh, by 25, I was a senior pastor of a church. What were you doing when you were 25? But for the grace of God, amen? I mean, I wasn't thinking I was going to be a senior pastor at 25. But in all my years of ministry, I can honestly say I've never prayed as much as I pray now. I, I don't know what God's doing with me. I've read books on prayer. I've studied prayer. I looked at the 24-7 prayer movement that broke out in uh, Europe uh, in the early 2000s and the crazy things that God did through that, like I've read Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire, which is a book of how on prayer the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir rose to be this powerful church in the Brooklyn community. I, I, I've talked a lot about it, but man, I, I can honestly say I've just not lingered in prayer for a long time, but man, I, I am praying so hard, but that's not what this series has taught me about. This series has taught me a significant amount about this spiritual habit that I don't have. It's the spiritual habit of remembering. Almost every psalm is calling to memory something God has done. I've never noticed it. But you read, it, it calls to memory. He's a shepherd. It calls to memory that past season over there in the desert. And how God provided and how God cared. And, 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 and I, know, I know that this is, a lot of us, it's like, just, just wrap it up. And, 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 but here's what I want, here's, here's my goal, like, like, what if every day you just set an alarm that reminded you to remember? Like, I, I need to so that I can authentically worship God. Saba! Because the next generation is watching me. I, I need to be authentic and genuine in my dependency. I need to watch my words and make sure that if I tell my kids that God is great and worthy to be praised, that they see a dad that every day is praising God, that they see a mom that every day is trusting God, that they see parents that depend on God. Or I don't want to tell them that this is who God is if we're going to contradict it in every step of our living outside of the church that's saying the same thing. So I, I want to be genuine. I I want it to be from my soul. And sometimes it may look like lament. Sometimes it may be crying out. And they've got to see mom and dad not knowing what we're doing, but we're running to Jesus because that's all we know to do because I think the next generation could benefit from knowing that he's great in that way. And when you don't know where to go, you can run home and be in the presence of God. So I, I want to get there. And, and, and my hypothesis here is that maybe... The way we get there is by remembering more. 
by, by stopping in the midst of days that, that hour by hour and minute by minute sometimes accelerate away from the focus and attention to God and slowing down intentionally to stop in the middle of what can be chaotic and saying, no, 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 I need to remember that I am not alone, that I'm not living as a practical atheist, that, that I believe that the Lord is lording over me, leading me, that His Spirit is in me, that He's the Good Shepherd who is helping me know where to go and I may not know what I'm doing or where I'm going or what's ahead of me down the highway that I'm about to drive down but God I'm going to stop and remember that you are the Lord who is near I'm going to stop and remember that you're the Lord who is faithful I'm going to stop and remember that you're the Lord who is able because I don't want to get convinced in a moment to where I forget that you are great and begin to wonder whether or not your power is sufficient for me in my time of need so, 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 we started by asking you to do some very difficult stuff. Like, are you walking with Jesus at a distance? Then I want to invite you today to run to the daggum altar. Stop worrying about it. Most of you ball your pants at Costco, too. Get over it. You got nothing. You got nothing to hide, nothing to cover. Like, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, we, we want Jesus. I, I want him, and I want him for you. I want him for you. He is powerful and able. He is a healer. So don't stop asking him to heal. He is a deliverer. So don't stop asking him to deliver. Stop sitting in here as if he's just a friend or some casual person that you come in contact with. Be casual around me, but don't be casual in the presence of God. Dear Lord, he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings and the, the ruler of the entire universe. And he is near to those who turn to him. So if you're walking at a distance, repent and run. If you're like walking in the friend zone, like repent and run run. If you're clinging to him, <laughs> repent and cling. Just keep clinging to Jesus. And in that, may he bring from your soul, Saba, a praise that's authentic, that's genuine, that speaks a testimony to the next generation of the power and the ability of God. We're going to respond. You stand to your feet. You move as the Lord leads. Prayer team, you come. In Jesus' name, amen.